Welcome to the MLB Trade Rumors Podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of the MLB Trade Rumors Podcast. My name is Dar McDonald. I write for MLB Trade Rumors. I host this podcast and I design the MLB uniforms this year. I hope you like them. I worked really hard on them. Everyone's talking about them, so I assume I did a great job. Uh, we are going to spend a half hour or so talking about what's going on in the baseball world. And here to talk to me about it is uh, MLB TR founder Tim Darkus. How's it going, Tim? Hey, good. Happy to be back. Um, got my transparent pants on. Ready to rock. <laughs> yes. What do you think about translucent pants? Do you think that that would have maybe been better received? Uh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> anything. Or are they translucent now? I guess they are translucent. Yeah. Either way, uh, it's exciting for uh, fans of baseball to get this inside look, uh, inside baseball look. So uh, we've been talking, it's spring training, I should say, the date, it is Tuesday, February 27th, spring training has started, Uh, the boys are out in the sun, people are using the word berm, it's spring training, but off-season stuff is still going on, as we've talked about on this podcast, Uh, the Boris Four have been in the spotlight for the past little while. Cody Bellinger, Matt Chapman, Blake Snell, Jordan Montgomery, all represented by Scott Boris, all looking for big contracts still into late into the winter. One of them finally got a deal this week. Cody Bellinger back to the Cubs. Three years, $80 million, which is $30 million, then an opt-out, then $30 million, then an opt-out, then another $20. Uh, how did you feel about this, Tim? Um, so at this stage, I think it kind of um, met our expectations. Um, We we threw out some predictions in the last week or so. And I think, I think all of us were were said three years with two opt-outs and we kind of had different ranges on the money. I think Anthony Franco deserves some credit. I think he said 384. I don't think we got it out in in the press, but it was in in my inbox. Um, So it matched our current expectations, but as our readership definitely reminded me in the comments of the Bellinger Post, it did not match our October or early November prediction for him, which, you know, one thing I want to point out too with the predictions is that we mostly try to avoid what other people are predicting until we get our thing published, our top 50 free agents list. So when we landed on 12 years and 264 million for Bellinger, I think I maybe had a whiff of like, oh, this is on the high end, but I also didn't think that like most people were going to come in at six years and 150 million. So, um, I mean, we immediately took like a lot of like, dude, you're nuts from, from many corners. I mean, did you, did you, um, check out some of the arrows coming our way on that? Uh, not, uh, recently, but, uh, I did probably for the best. Yeah. I do remember when the top 50 came out that even back then people thought we were nuts. But I think uh, the tea leaves became more apparent to us over the winter. And as you said, as it, as we got to this late February stage, it did seem like some short-term thing was going to be much more likely. So what? why, why do you think that this happened? Um, there, there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, I, I think that some of it is specific to this offseason. Um, I think it is uh, having – what do we have? Um eight teams over the competitive balance tax with, I think, potential for three more. We have four teams paying 95% and up 
on every dollar they spend right now. So I think that's a part of it. I think the kind of the collapse of the RSN model um, is showing itself this off season more than ever. So I think that those are big factors for Bellinger. Um, but I also think it's fair to say that he probably did not receive offers north of $200 million. So, I mean, it was a bad prediction. But I've thought about like these kind of different data points in terms of, okay, what we said, which was really aggressive, um, what he signed for, which was surprising, I think, to everybody. There was no $80 million or three-year predictions coming from anywhere. And then what um, our peers thought, which was in the range of six years and $150 million. And so I feel that Bellinger and Boris were not going to take six years and $150 million. And And I know we were talking about this a little bit before we hit record, but you know, what were your thoughts on why he wouldn't have done that? Well, the trend that we have seen in recent years is that with uh, superstar players, you're buying out essentially the remainder of their career. And so we saw deals go into a player's late 30s, early 40s with guys like Bogarts and Judge, where it's basically you want to lock him up and keep the guy around, even if it takes a decade and you're paying him to like what seems kind of like maybe an irresponsible age to sign a guy through. But that's what it takes to get it done. And it's, you know, if you stretch the guarantee out longer, it lowers the um, competitive balance tax hit. Uh, and so, you know, Trey Turner is another one. He got 11 years. Bogart's got 11 years. Uh, Judge got nine, even though he was already in his early 30s. Um, and so Bellinger is going into his age 28 season. And, you know, if you consider him to be that sort of like MVP star caliber player, Boris was probably saying, okay, well, then if you want to lock him up for the rest of his career, this is what it takes. You got to sign him to that huge mega deal that locks him up for the rest of his career. And it didn't seem like that was on the table. And so, you know, what happened with uh, Carlos Correa when he didn't get the big, huge, like career altering thing is that he pivoted to the short term deal. But we were talking, like you said before, we went on Mike, you know, the six year, $150 million type framework that other people had suggested that only takes Bellinger through his mid thirties. And so it's sort of, why would he take that? Do you know what I mean? Like he's only, uh, by taking this short term deal, he's getting halfway to that $150 million contract. And he still has more opportunity to get, uh, a larger contract either a year from now or two years from now. And so, it seems like even though we were way off with the like 200 plus thing, it's also like when you look at it from Bellinger's perspective, he doesn't have a lot of incentive to take that sort of $150 million type range. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely agree. Um, and like I was thinking about how after the 2025 season, he could opt out and anything beyond a $90 million contract um, would justify having turned down 150 now. Um, and I, I think like a, for a 30-year-old Bellinger to be a $90 million plus player, um, it's, it's pretty plausible. And it's, it's not that crazy that he could get $150 at, at that point. And, you know, we could be adding it on to the 60 that he might have banked. Um, so, I mean, I think that Boris is hoping for that. But I think if he'd gotten a $200 million plus offer, he, he would have locked that in because, of course, there's a risk that he... Um, is not as good this year. And I think most people do not think he will be as good this year as he was um, 
you know, I, there's a there's a big focus on the Statcast metrics, and I think that for me, the lesson is a little more on the Statcast metrics than it is on Bellinger's kind of lost seasons. I think teams have a lot of recency bias, and they I think that they might have been able to buy into the idea that he was really bad for several years because he was hurt, but these teams, I think, all have models that are kind of making projections. And, um, you know, a 10% hard hit rate is not doing well in that model. And so we've seen some guys, and, and Bogarts would be a pretty good example, who got paid with some questionable or at least below 50th percentile stat cast metrics. But we have not really seen guys get paid with the extreme of, of Bellinger. Um, I think I'm assuming Boris had... Um, kind of a binder or an army of arguments against this stuff, but obviously teams did not buy it. I mean, if you look at a guy who pretty clearly kind of took a two-strike approach of putting the bat on the ball, you know, and and some of the... Because um, the strikeout like, rate was way down. Yeah, yeah. And so some of the soft hits, they, they're, they're part of the reason he batted 307. And I pulled up, you know, videos of some of his lowest exit velocity hits. And, you know, some of them, at least a few of them were like um, uh, ground balls to the left side that he flat out beat out that a lot of players might not have beat out. And he was showing pretty good speed on those. Other ones are ones where he kind of like would dink the ball over the shortstop or the second baseman's head. And it was an unimpressive hit. And they weren't all in two strikes, but they were hits. And so I don't know to what degree he can control that. But I was kind of like, as a thought exercise, I was like wondering well, what would he have had to do to get to 50th percentile hard hit rate from 10? Because I think a guy like Lane Thomas was around 50th percentile hard hit, hit rate. And a hard hit is just a, a hit of um, it's what percentage of your hits are 95 miles per hour and up. But not your hits, but your batted balls that you in play. So, I mean, in theory, he could have taken his 100 weakest balls that he made contact on and struck out instead. And he would have doubled his strikeout rate, but his hard hit rate would have been 50th percentile. And I almost wonder if, I don't think he's going to like try to do that, but I almost wonder if like moving a little bit in that direction would like make teams uh, find him more palatable. Like if he could bring that up to the 40th or 50th percentile and somehow still bat 280 or 290, teams wouldn't freak out about it as much maybe. I would also have uh, at least a little bit of skepticism that it was really about the stat gas uh, stat cast data because Matt Chapman has great stat cast data and he is also unsigned. So it's not like having great stat cast data is all that teams are focused on right now. So I would suggest that it's more well, let me put it to you this way, because I think we talked before we started recording as something we wanted to discuss, like would Bellinger have got the mega deal he was looking for? in a different winter. And I think that's a very interesting question because we've seen over the past couple of years, you know, with the last CBA, the tax uh, lines were all pushed up and there was a lot of spending and, you know, teams like the Mets and the Padres were kind of going nuts and spending a lot. And there was a lot of aggressive deals and we sort of thought it would continue into this winter, but then the TV stuff uh, led to teams like the Rangers and the Padres and the Twins sort of pulling back on the reins. And that allowed the Yankees to address their outfield via trade by getting 
Soto and Verdugo and Grisham instead of spending on somebody like Bellinger. Oh, and then on top of that, you know, teams like the Mets and the Red Sox were just sort of like sitting it out, not even really for financial reasons, just as like, I don't know, a choice, retooling, however you want to phrase it. And so I think if there was like two or three more teams who were being aggressive this winter, then he might have done better just because he was the best guy out there. But it just happened to be that this musical chairs thing where the Dodgers were the aggressive team. They went after Otani and Yamamoto, and then there was sort of this waiting game. We've been in this staring uh, contest for the past couple months, Bellinger, Chapman, Snell, Montgomery, with like three or four teams who could maybe sign them, but also they're like, meh, we'll wait. And they just have been waiting. I I think you would have probably gotten 200 plus in a different winter. I think, um, I think we underestimated um, the number of teams that were going to take a step back or kind of relax this off season. Um, like if you look at where was money spent, there was teams that the Phillies went big on Aaron Nola. There was a really early deal. There was definitely teams willing to go to that level based on reports. The Dodgers we know had their two guys that they went absolutely crazy on and other teams are willing to do that too. But those were unique superstar caliber players that I don't think anybody considered Bellinger, you know, in the same bracket. Beyond that, the biggest deal was the Giants with Jung-Hoo Lee, where they put out like $133 million for him, which I think is an offer that Bellinger would have declined. But so you didn't have teams doing like a, a slew of $150 million deals. And we might maybe see a couple uh, with Snell or Montgomery, but... Um, to date, like the number of teams throwing around money of that level is just not there. Um, so I think that we underestimated that and, and that it is tricky when one thing that, that we tend to do that I think we need to try not to do is kind of look at the previous off season and say, well, here's the quote unquote trend based on what we saw and here's how we can make our projections better um, based on that trend. And then you realize, well, it's not a trend. Xander Bogarts is not a trend. He's just a singular data point. He's one team and one owner and one GM kind of being aggressive on on one player. And so I think that if Boris were to bring up Xander Bogarts or even Chris Bryan and be like, well, here's why Bellinger deserves 200 million. Other teams would just be like, well, we don't want him. Like precedent doesn't matter in a, in a bidding war. We don't care. Um, so I don't think we we gave that proper consideration. So I look at like, there was some absolute recklessness just last winter. There was also going, like, as we discussed, there's going really long on terms, which is where the 12 years came from. Our AAV was actually only 22 million on, on Bellinger, but there's just, there was some recklessness. And I think we felt that Bogarts was. I think that everybody was about $100 million short on what they predicted Bogarts to get versus what he did. And when I think about risk, I think about Jacob deGrom. Um, I think that that, that deal was very risky and it's easy to say now but I, I think it was covering his age what was that like 35 to 39 or something i believe so yeah at 37 million dollars a year for a guy who'd made 26 starts over the two previous seasons and i think 15 in the platform year or 11 or yeah i don't remember which is which but like Degrom was incredibly risky um so you know when you talk about the risk of bellinger kind of Dropping down and being a two two win type of player, I mean, Degrom had massive injury risk, um, and I think that that was borne out. So, like, teams didn't take the, that risk this winter. Mm-hmm. 
Um, well, let me throw a couple other things at you that I think are interesting because what I've heard some people suggest, which I don't know how much to believe in, but I'd be interested to hear your thoughts. In the age of, you know, we're seeing the cable model pivot to this streaming model. And I've seen some people suggest that having a huge superstar like Otani is incredibly value, uh, incredibly valuable because it leads to more subscriptions and viewers and things like that. And so I just thought of it when you were talking about how we've seen a couple $300 million. Well, Yamamoto got over 300 Otani got 700 kind of. But, you know, when you factor in the deferrals, it's in, it was just over 400 But then almost nothing in the like 100 to $300 million range. So it seems like this offseason has been sort of either you're a huge difference-making superstar that can lead to like marketing opportunities or you're not. And then combined with that, we also talked a little bit about uh, on the weekend when the Bellinger deal came through, whether the expanded playoff field is leading to teams sort of being like, well, you know, we're pretty good. Unless you're Otani, then we don't really need you because our team is kind of like pretty good as is. So do you think that there's like a gap between the huge difference-making superstar like Otani and then somebody like Bellinger, who's pretty good, but not worth the team tripping over themselves to sign? Absolutely. And I think that if there's a trend, this might be the trend because it's a trend toward overall salary suppression, which is kind of owner's jam. And so like, if you look at what used to be the middle class of free agency, those guys used to get a lot of money. And I think a lot of those deals, we used to be like, well, that was stupid. But there was always a couple teams every winter willing to give like Wei-Yin Chen like $90 million. And I think that the Wei-Yin Chens of 2024 and 25 and 26 are not getting $90 million. And I think that if you're like this true MVP Cy Young contender, like you said, you're going to get like, a bidding frenzy even beyond our wildest expectations, which is, I think, what Yamamoto got. But if you're kind of a notch below and you project for a really solid three-ish wins, which is what most of these Boris guys project for, teams might squeeze you out. And I think that there's nothing that Boris or Tony Clark can really do about it. I think it's probably smarter um, I think that, you know, if you look at so many of these, like from the team perspective, it's smarter. Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, like when you look at so many of these deals that kind of um, were for like free agents number five through 10 or whatever on our list, they went badly. But when you look at like Bryce Harper and Manny Machado, they went pretty well. And so it's like I think the the markets are going to become increasingly top heavy. And the Teoscar Hernandez's are going to be pretty much screwed. Um, and I don't really see a way to fix that. I think we talked over text with our team a little bit about it. We talked about, you know, could the players fight for free agency after five years of service? Or should they try to bump the minimum salary up aggressively? But, like, for if the, if the teams starve out the Bellingers of the world, I don't think you can force them to do big contracts for a guy like that through collective bargaining. Right. Well, um, pivoting then, there's still those three Boris guys out there. Does the Bellinger situation, how does it affect what you think is coming next? Um. So, you know, we thought he would get like three years and anywhere from like 84 to 110. 
And then, so for some of these guys, it makes me think, wow, Bellinger did, you know, about 10 million worse than we thought. Then, you know, what's the argument on Matt Chapman? I mean, Bellinger had like a, like a good season. He batted 307. He hit, I think, 26 home runs. He was maybe 134 weighted runs created. Like he was a very good player. He played above average center field defense. Like he, he was the complete package. He just didn't have like kind of the, stat cast to back it up where he's looking like Matt Chapman. And, you know, I think you probably saw this up close, but like he was really bad for like basically May and beyond, like really, really bad. And so, yeah, I mean, for teams to kind of be like, look, dude, you have no leverage. You need a good situation and you just need to try again next winter. And maybe like don't bet 200 and maybe you'll get like a nice 90 to $120 million deal or something. And so, we sent out an article for front office subscribers where we put new predictions down. I came in really low on Chapman. I came in like two years and 36 million. I didn't put an opt out in there, but upon a little more reflection, I think that if he were to do a two year, he would need an opt out. And that if that wasn't being offered to him, I think he would look at one year and like maybe one year and something approaching 20 million where teams are like, well, there's just no risk here. And 20 million for three war is just absolutely worth it. And we need to find room in the budget and do it. And I think that does include the Cubs. And I think it could include the Giants, which is a popular pick. Um, but you know, I think all you guys thought Chapman could get at least three years, right? So what do you think about him? Uh yeah, I mean, I'm a Chapman defender. So uh even though uh he didn't have uh, an amazing season, I think his uh glove gives him uh, an amazing floor. Um, but I think it's tough for him. Can I interrupt to, though? Yeah, do you can. Get paid, do, I, do guys get paid on their glove though? Because like I kind of think that they don't. Well, this is what I was just going to say is that uh, him taking a short-term deal might not be terribly attractive because he's already going into his age 31 season. And if your glove is your best asset, are you going to get more money a year from now when you're going into your age 32 so, season? So what if? What if the best three-year deal is for fifty million, and the best one-year deal is for eighteen to twenty? Which do you take? Uh, <laughs> uh, and I'm not necessarily thinking that in a three-year deal he's getting opt-outs. Like, yeah, I don't know about that. Yeah, I don't know. It's tricky. It's it's especially tricky because I learned after the uh, Bellinger deal, because up until the Bellinger deal, I thought. Chapman actually made more sense for the Cubs than Bellinger yeah, I, did. I, I thought that too. Yeah. And so now that the Cubs have signed Bellinger and put themselves right up against the luxury tax, they could still fit Chapman on the team from a roster perspective, but I'm assuming they probably want to go into the season right where they are financially, which is right against the line, and then they can decide mid-season if they want to pay the tax or not. And so I mean, then it's kind of the least just that's one of the least justifiable um we can't spend because of the CBT examples. Cause it's like the taxes on a Chapman deal would still be like a few million dollars. So if you got them for 18 and you ended up paying them 21, it's not the same as like, um, you know, somebody might say, well, you know, the Mets should get them and plug them in instead of Brett Beatty. And uh, well, the Mets are paying 110%. Mm -hmm. So like the argument there is really rough in terms of like, just am I getting my money's worth? So the Mets would need to give him like a $10 million contract. 
Yeah, I think the argument, I mean, uh, I always advocate for team spending more. Um, so, but I think what they would say is that there are compounding taxes by being a repeat uh, payer. So if you're right near the line, it makes more sense to be just below than just above because by paying, you, you could say it's, oh, it's like they're only going to pay $2 million tax. That's a drop in the bucket. But that also means that next year their taxes go up even higher. And then if they, if they pay the tax again in 2026, you know, it, it compounds. And so there are, is probably a dollar amount to staying just below the line where it's actually way more than the actual 2 million that you would pay for Chapman. That's um, a good point. What do you think about, Montgomery versus Snell. I almost feel like Snell is the pound for pound better pitcher and the guy you'd put in game one of the playoff series, but that we all kind of think that, well, I guess we all don't think this, but there seems to be a vibe that maybe Montgomery can do better or, you know what I mean? Like that Snell's going to maybe go short term because he's like, dude, I just won the Cy Young award. Whereas Montgomery's like, oh, okay, I guess I'm not a $150 million guy, but if I'm a $110 million guy, I'm good. Whereas Snell might not accept something like that. What, what do you think about that? I still am in the Snell should take as much guarantee as he can get right now, Camp, because he he just won't have a better platform season than the one he just had. What if had. it's – now this kind of goes back to my Chapman thing. What if it's uh, four years and $120 million? Well, yeah. Then that, that instead of like one year and 35 or something? If that's the best he can get, I mean, I – don't see why a team like the Padres wouldn't just like extend it to like eight years or something just to yeah. get the value down to like $20 million a year. Cause it's like, you know, well that's... then he'd have to be saying like, Hey, after the next four years, my earning power is basically nothing, you know, which I don't know if he thinks that way. Yeah. It's an interesting question. Cause you know, you mentioned DeGrom earlier who still got paid going into his age 35 season, but also a lot of guys that does not happen where they, yeah. Most. They, yeah. So yeah, I don't know. Uh, before we move on, do you want to? Do you have any more Boris guys' thoughts? Um, yeah, mostly like um, I, I I think I differ from you guys on Snell. Um, I just on February twenty seventh to give a starting pitcher that everybody seems so scared of that everybody called their their landmine to give that guy like a hundred and seventy five million plus. I don't know if I can see it. And so like I looked at we're going to get into this with a listener question. But when I look at the the March and later free agent deals, um, first of all, there's only there's only one that was over 75 million and it was Bryce Harper. And so like that was weird. And Bryce Harper didn't really feel risky and I think was always going to get 300 million dollars. But like we've not really seen a team go big on a starting pitcher in March. Um, so I guess that's kind of my parting thought on, on snow. Okay. Well, let's get to that listener question. Then a uh, question yeah, from sure. Dave who says we have some brand name starting pitchers who will be signing contracts after spring training games have begun. Historically, how have previous late signings fared after their seasons started so late? So this is a, this is a great chance for me to plug our MLB contract tracker. Um, if you subscribe to Trade Rumors Front Office for $30 a year, you will gain access to that. Um, I'm really proud of it. It just has contracts dating back to 2010 and about to be 2009, and we, so we keep adding more. So anyway, I, I, I use that tool to look up players who signed in March or later, kind of significant free agent deals. I excluded the pandemic season. I excluded the post-lockout frenzy in 22. 
I found 11 notable free agent deals. Five of them were multi-year and six were one year. These are all guys who are kind of on the front end of our free agent lists and stuff who we thought would do well. Um, and so kind of evaluating the first year of those deals, especially since a lot of them were one-year deals, um, there was two that were good where the player performed well. That was Bryce Harper and Irvin Santana. There was four that I thought the player performed decently, which was Dallas Keuchel, Jake Arrieta, Mike Moustakis, and Kyle Loesch. And there's five that were um, just really bad. Craig Kimbrell, Greg Holland, Alex Cobb, Kendrys Morales, and, and Stephen Drew. And so I don't know what you were up to in 2014, but the, uh, the, the Morales and Drew guys deals really stick out because those guys actually, like 10 years ago, there was like a qualifying offer panic where it was just like teams are really clutching their pearls about surrendering draft, pit, surrendering draft picks. And so those guys waited until after the draft. Well, that was back then. It was a first round pick. I think you had to give up, and now yeah, they've, they've it was worse. Yeah, they've moved it back. Like I think now it's like a second or a third or a fifth, depending on your luxury tax status or whatever. The penalties aren't as bad now. Um, but yeah, but these guys starting in June, which Kimbrel also did. The June starters, I guess there's, I think three i think this kimbrell morales and drew I, I don't think greg holland did that and so like the june starters um maybe keichel did that anyway they all did really bad i think and then i think like the relievers which were kimbrell and holland was like they seemed like they were really showing the effects of not having like a normal spring training and starts of the season that said i don't really think we can draw conclusions from these 11 players that i found um i just think everybody's different and it's not it's obviously not desirable to have like a weird ramp up to your season but i think some guys are going to overcome it and some aren't and i i'm not really confident that i can predict who those people are going to be what do you what do you think uh yeah i mean i think that's fair we're talking about a small sample size um you would think it's interesting that the relievers did poorly because you would think that that would be the position where it would be the easiest to just sort of get into mid-season form because yeah how many innings do relievers pitch in spring training anyway like eight or something yeah exactly so yeah um so i don't know so maybe there's not a pattern there i don't know okay so let's get to another question um so we got a question here from Kyle who says, does the Aaron Nola deal look terrible in hindsight? In my opinion, he's not as good as Snell or Montgomery and Nola got more money than every pitcher except for the Dodgers guys. Do the Sonny Gray and Erod deals also look smarter than Nola's? So I, I think that Nola, Gray and Erod all landed around expectations. I think there's a good chance that at least one of Snell or, or Montgomery falls short of expectations. And so in that sense, if Dave Dombrowski had kind of sat on his hands instead of locking up Nola in November, then it is true that he might be in a spot to send a somewhat comparable pitcher or an equally talented pitcher um, like Montgomery, who I think we debated as a somewhat similar abilities. Um, for Montgomery, we I don't we think might get four or five years, and I think there's you know some real chance of even shorter than that. Um, but I think that when you sign your guy to a market value deal before Thanksgiving, um, you've kind of made a choice and you've protected yourself in the event that the market market goes crazy, which I think people actually thought when, when we saw the NOLA deal come in, everybody was like, wow, OK, 
pitchers are going to get paid. Like, where's Montgomery getting his $175 million? And we, we, you know, people thought this was like a sign. And so when you go early, you protect yourself against having to like deal with prices that you hate on other players. But then if you go early like that, too, you also take on the risk that um, you read the market wrong and the market is going to tank. And then, you know, you can go be really opportunistic about the Jordan Montgomery's of the world. So I think, you know, to answer the question, no, I don't I don't consider the NOLA deal terrible. I think um, when, when you make the early choice, like you, there's pros and cons to it. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Yeah, I think you articulated it well. Uh, sometimes you think that you have to get a deal done because you're going to be left holding the bag if you don't. Uh, it, a, a much smaller one that... Uh, I'm familiar with because I'm up here in Toronto is uh, the Jays gave two years and $15 million to Isaiah Kiner Falefa a couple months ago, thinking that they needed him in their infield. And then here just recently in the last week, we've seen infielders like uh, Tim Anderson signed for only 5 million. Gio Urshela signed for only 1.5. Ahmed Rosario signed for 1.5. And there's still a couple guys out there. So they really didn't need to jump the market for Isaiah Kiner Falefa. But at the time they were like, Oh, we have to, do this because we don't want to get into spring training and not have the guy that we want. Yeah, there's there's like a long history. Um, this would be kind of an interesting article. Well, interesting to me. <laughs> there's a long history of teams kind of jumping the market on utility guys or, or like it's usually infielders, like guys who are just like like a hair short of being a starter um, and giving them like just weird amounts of money. And then like anecdotally those seem like those always turn out really poorly the one i can remember like in the chicago you know a couple that jumped to my mind mark DeRosa actually i think went fine but uh back in the day jim hendry like gave him a really aggressive deal for, for what he was at the time but then the white Sox signed jeff keppinger i think to a three-year deal that was like an instant bomb and so some of these guys who i don't think are quite being penciled in as starters those are not the guys for the 12 15 million dollar deals um you, you gotta just wait back and get a better deal okay we got time for one more question i think uh wilson wants to know what is the feeling around soto and where he might be in 2025 i feel like he's going to stick with the yankees but everyone seems to think it's a one-year location for him uh well i think we've shown that we can't really predict what's going to happen <laughs> even when it's like right in front of our faces let alone a year from now yeah my feeling is it's just way too early to call this and i don't i don't really know why we would try like i don't i don't mind trying to like take a stab at the contracts um way too early but um taking a stab at the teams way too early is, is just even further off like if you look at our free agent prediction contest let's see what's our What's our contest leaders? We have. I'm doing terribly. I can tell you that. I think yeah, I'm in last well, among the writers. Shout, shout out to Leo Morgenstern from our staff who has nine right out of 43. But so we've got out of, uh, I think, about 6,000 entries, we've got seven people who are betting 233. They have 10 of 43 correct. So those are the very best. Everybody else is below. So I think it just shows the impossibility of making that prediction. But to the questioner's point, um, I actually agree with with him. Um, I, I, there's no reason to like write off the Yankees here. Um, they've they've gone to the top of the market historically and, and sometimes had big success. I think they're fine with their Aaron Judge deal. They're happy with Garrett Cole's deal. 
I think Sabathia and Teixeira kind of won them a World Series and pretty much worked out fine. So if you have Juan Soto, he's 25 years old. He's one of the best hitters in baseball. He could be primed for a big year. Um, I think that everybody understands that the Yankees would have to kind of compete on the open market for him. But they're the Yankees. They, they're they're going to be willing to do that. Um, I don't think they're going to be like, well, Juan Soto, no way. We're, we're out on him. And like, why? Why would they do that? And so I, I've seen um, the, the one early, I guess, kind of guess is Bob Nightingale has cited the Mets as a favorite for, for Soto. Um, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. If, I don't really put a lot of stock into it. Um, I could see Bob having talked to Steve Cohen or something, and I could see Steve Cohen being enamored of Soto, but um, I would assume that Steve Cohen is enamored of, of all superstars who hit the market, so he doesn't sign all of them. All right. Well, uh, that's all the time we have for this week. Uh, Tim, thanks for hanging out with me. Yeah, my pleasure. Well, like I mentioned, spring training has started, uh, but Montgomery is still out there. Snell is still out there. Chapman is still out there. And we will see how that plays out in the coming weeks. Uh, so check out MLBTradeRumors.com for all the latest. Sign up for the front office package to get rid of the ads and get all that extra stuff in your email and use the contract tracker. And we will have a new podcast episode for you next week. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Remember to visit MLBTradeRumors.com and follow us on Twitter at MLBTradeRumors. 